Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 92, Pope Gregory III. Another one? Another one! Two in a row. Two Gregs. Gregnant? <laughs> Hello, Gregnant! <laughs> I wonder if he'll realize that that is about him. I'm sure he will. <laughs> But anyways, this is, yes, this is Gregory III, so let's jump right into him. Gregory was born in Syria in either the late 660s or early 670s, and his father was called John. Oh. Do you remember in our last episode we had Pope names for parents, and you said, and it's not John, and so now it's John. It's John again. And right off the bat, I am going to throw a pontifact at you. Pontifact! Because he is our last Syrian pope in the history of the church up until today. And more shockingly, he is the last non-European pope right up until Pope Francis. Oh my gosh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, everyone we're going to be dealing with from now until then is all going to be from Europe. And most of them are going to be from Rome, as we know. But at some point, he joined the church and he came to Rome. And by the 730s, he was a priest at St. Chrysogeno in the city with a reputation for, quote unquote, virtue and knowledge. The Liber Pontificalis describes him this way. He was gentle and exceptionally wise competently versed in the Holy Scripture, proficient in Greek and Latin, knowing by heart all the psalms in order and interpreting them elegantly and with the most sensitive and subtle touches. In speech, too, he was refined through his reading. He gave encouragement to all good works, and among the people, he flourishingly preached salvation, preaching his salutary warnings about preserving unmutilated the Catholic and apostolic faith forever, invigorating the hearts of the faithful, he loved the poor and was concerned to look after the destitute, not merely with dutiful attention, but through his own hard work and toil. He ransomed captives and bountifully gave orphans and widows what they needed. He was a lover of the religious life by Christian rule and had affection for those who wanted to live the religious life and have the fear of God in their hearts. We may have another priest crush on our hands. Yeah, that does sound like a priest crush. And this is, having been a fair bit ahead in the research, I can say that priest crushes are going to become the absolute norm in the authors of the Liber Pontificalis, because I have read some very strange methods of praise in the last few weeks. Be prepared for that in the future. On February 11th of 731, priest of San Crisogeno Gregory stepped outside of his church, and he was doing this so that he could watch the funeral procession of the recently deceased Pope Gregory II. The streets were crowded, and nearly all of the clergy of Rome had come out to honor the well-loved leader who had stood strong through so many crises. And when the funeral procession got closer, Something about this priest watching on must have stood out to the crowd, because the clergy all stopped in the middle of this funeral procession, 
to look at him. And before he knew it, as the Liber Pontificalis tells us, he was noticed in front of the bier at the funeral that the men of Rome and the whole people from the greatest to the least, by God's inspiration, suddenly took him away by force and elected him to the Order of the Pontificate. I wonder what what would he do? <laughs> he must have just been glowing with, like, divine light or something, because they have literally hauled this man off of his feet while he's just watching this funeral, and then they have elected him by acclamation to be the next pope. In the middle of a funeral. Finish what you're doing. In the middle of a funeral, by the entire crowd of clerics and laymen alike, no less. So, like, literally everyone who was there was like, this man! It's, it's just so out of the blue. According to all, divine inspiration was at hand, and he's going to be the next pope. So this makes him the third pope elected by acclamation, after Fabian, episode 22, and Gregory I, episode 66. Gregory was, to say the least, stunned and and very hesitant. I mean, rightfully so. This is not how he had been planning to spend his day, let alone the rest of his life. And if you consider how tumultuous our last papacy was, this is not necessarily a job that he wanted. And maybe this is why he was elected this way, right? None of the other clerics wanted to follow Gregory II either, so they just went, Hey, this guy. Gregory's a little concerned, and he decides to try a stalling tactic, because he decides in this moment that this massive election by acclamation isn't quite valid enough for his liking. And so he decides that, oh no, you can't make me Pope yet. I'm going to wait because I need to receive confirmation from the Exarch of Ravenna. We also need to finish a funeral. Yeah, you need to finish this funeral and then we need to wait for the Exarch of Ravenna to confirm me. You know, that incredibly long and inconvenient policy that popes have only recently broken away from? Mm-hmm. That. <laughs> so... He writes to the Exarch, and he's like, oh, I have been elected Pope, and I am looking for your confirmation. And the Exarch in Ravenna goes, oh, sure, yeah, absolutely. And instead of, like, this year-long gap that we've seen, it only took a month this time. <laughs> <laughs> and so Gregory, who was looking for a stall tactic, was consecrated as the new Pope on March 18th, 731. And adding to the things that he's last at, he is the last pope to receive imperial confirmation from Ravenna as well. He only pulled that out as a Hail Mary, and it didn't quite work for him. Just as expected, as soon as Gregory was consecrated as pope, he was thrown headfirst into the ongoing iconoclast controversy with Emperor Leo III. And like his predecessor, Gregory was a staunch defender of religious icons and images and the veneration thereof. So he decides to immediately write to the emperor, hoping that maybe he could bring about a resolution. But it turned out to be a little bit more complicated than that. First, Emperor Leo is absolutely not interested in what the Pope has to say on this matter and he's continuing to enforce his edict banning all the icons. 
And there are also going to be some significant obstacles in communication. You see, Gregory sent many letters. The first was sent with an envoy called George, who went to Constantinople and then lost heart. Oh, okay. Well, at least he didn't lose anything else. (laughs) So perhaps he saw the tension in the city when he got to Constantinople over this iconoclastic edict, and he became very concerned for his safety if he were to go and deliver this letter to the emperor. So whether it was that or something else, we're told that George, once he got to Constantinople, just left to return to Rome and never delivered the letters to the emperor at all. So he gets back to Rome and he confesses this to the Pope and Pope Gregory is not at all happy, right? He, he is so unhappy that he calls a synod fully intending to strip George of the priesthood for his actions. Oh, George. However, at the synod, which began in October of 731, the attending clergy of Rome prevailed upon the Pope to be lenient. They're like, look, this is not a great time in Constantinople. Why don't you just give him some penance instead? And and Gregory is won over, so George's clerical status was maintained, and all the clerics in attendance confirmed their resistance to the iconoclast edict. So after the synod, George is given the chance to redeem himself. He's basically told, go back, try again, bring the emperor this letter from the Pope. And so he leaves and he's, he's going to go and, and do it this time. He's, he realizes that he can't wuss out a second time. I mean, he could, but... Well, he doesn't. I mean, he doesn't get the chance to, because this time he's stopped in Sicily and arrested by Byzantine officials and held in captivity for over a year. Oh, okay. Well, you can't get there if you're in prison. Exactly. It seems like he had a good reason to be concerned in the first place. This arrest spurs the Pope to hold a second synod, only one month after the first in November 731, to make a more serious and definite declaration against the emperor's iconoclast policies. This second synod was attended by 93 bishops from throughout Italy, including the bishops Anthony of Grado, Calixtus of Aquileia, and John of Ravenna, as well as the whole of the Roman clergy. There were even local officials loyal to the Pope and civil Roman nobility in attendance. Like He wants everybody there to witness this. This synod confirms that iconoclasm was heresy, and the veneration of icons were a symbolic way to honor religious figures. He even confirms the use of specific prayers and masses to be used when venerating icons, relics, or images. The Liber Pontificalis summarizes the decree of the council in this way. If anyone thenceforth despising the faithful use of those who held the ancient custom of the apostolic church should remove, destroy, profane, and blaspheme against this veneration of the sacred image, visions of our God and Lord Jesus Christ, of his mother the ever-virgin and immaculate glorious Mary, of the blessed apostles and of the saints, let him be driven forth from the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and from the unity and membership of the entire church excommunication for the iconoclasts, basically. And now everybody has witnessed this. It seems a little far to go. It's one of those really big issues in the church, right? 
on the other side, these iconoclasts are basically accusing the church of idolatry, which is one yeah. of those Ten Commandment things. <laughs> but also, like, I mean, just excommunicating people who are like, we don't like your religious icons. I don't know. It seems rough. It's not like it's murder or something. Well, and it's one of those things that, you know, for the Western church, as much as they are going to loudly protest about this issue, it doesn't really come to the West. This this sort of becomes an Eastern-specific phenomenon, and they're going to fight amongst themselves for a long time about this, much longer than we're going to talk about it with the Pope. I don't know. It's It's kind of like the Pope has to take a stance on it, obviously. But... They're going to fight it out amongst themselves anyways, so it seems a little bit like wasted energy. How do you feel about those lambs, though? That's pretty much what it boils down to. And also, at the Synod, because the bishops of Grado and Aquileia were present, Gregory also used the Synod to settle yet another jurisdictional dispute between the two. Right? These areas are always fighting over territory. So, Calixtus, the bishop of Aquileia, had been trying to squirrel away the island of Brabana from the jurisdiction of Grado, and as a result, Gregory officially limited the jurisdiction of Aquileia to the mainland, giving Grado the islands of the region. So from this second synod, Gregory sends a new legate, the defensor Constantine, with a letter to the emperor to outline the synodal position. And while that letter was en route to Constantinople, Gregory made a particular and public effort to emphasize the practice of venerating icons. Wherever he could, he rebuilt declining churches and filled them with relics and icons and religious images of all of the varieties that were banned by Constantinople, so the saints, Mary, and Christ, and wherever he founded new buildings, like the Monastery of St. Chrysogenus, he did the same. He even commissioned a new oratory for St. Peter's, dedicated to Our Lady, and he filled it with relics and decorated it with inscriptions of veneration. He also displayed a prominent iconostasis, which is a wall of icons, from the Exarch of Ravenna, right in the center of St. Peter's, to really make his point. You're trying to condemn us for this practice. We're going to double down and venerate icons everywhere. Then the Pope's new legate, Constantine, who was bringing this letter to Constantinople, was also arrested like George had been before him. And the Pope got a little frustrated. So he sends another, the defensor Peter, this time with a letter for both the emperor and for the patriarch. And the same thing happened. He even had other officials from across Italy who weren't clerics try to send letters, thinking if maybe it didn't come directly through the Pope, it had a better chance of reaching its target of the Emperor. But the same thing just kept happening. Every single one of these people were arrested for trying to bring this letter into Constantinople. It's not going. It's just not going. The Emperor has no interest in reading the Pope's letters. However, just because the emperor wasn't reading the letters doesn't mean he doesn't know exactly what the pope is trying to say. Like, he's fully aware that the pope is resisting his edict, and he just wanted to frustrate the attempts at delivery of the letter to undermine the validity of its contents. But he absolutely knew 
And he absolutely had a response nonetheless. And that response was force, because that's how Byzantine emperors do, right? So right away, Emperor Leo seized the regions of Calabria and Sicily and the region of Illyricum, and in those regions, he confiscated any papal patrimonial lands and transferred the income that they produced for the church and the authority over those regions to the Patriarch of Constantinople rather than to the Pope. He also tried to confiscate papal patrimonies in Naples, but the Duke there had refused to enforce the confiscation due to a treaty with the Pope. So this obviously was a very substantial blow, as the income of the patrimonial lands were a large part of the income that funds the church, and this is obviously an insult to papal primacy to transfer anything out of the authority of the Pope. That's just not done. And unfortunately, these are regions that the Pope could not have yet defended. They're just so far away, the Pope only has so much militia. They're there for the taking, and the Emperor has taken them. And they're likely not the Pope's main priority, because at the same time that these lands were being taken away, Leo's other response was to send a fleet of ships to Rome, full of soldiers, who would kidnap and kill the Pope once they got there. He's a little bit more concerned with those. However, fortunately for him, the ships were destroyed in a storm in the Adriatic Sea and entirely wiped out before they could get there. That's some good luck. Yeah, that sea is dangerous. It is dangerous. And this also definitely works out in the favor of the Pope and becomes a huge public relations boost, right? Because the emperor's fallen into tyranny and when he sends violence to the Pope, divine intervention is protecting him. It's all very good. And this destruction of the fleet of ships allowed Pope Gregory some time to focus on other papal business, right? Because it's going to be a long time before the emperor can recoup those losses and send more force to come against him. So he turns his attention to the wider world and the missionary efforts that we started to discuss last week. In the English church, Gregory confirmed Tatwine as the Archbishop of Canterbury and received him when he came to Rome on pilgrimage, as well as confirmed his successor, Northelm, in 734. But more importantly for the development of the English church, Gregory III is the one who creates the second archbishopric in England. We've got Canterbury, it's all now well established in the south, but as the church grew, it was time to establish another centralized diocese for the north. So York is promoted, and its bishop Egbert receives the pallium and was consecrated as archbishop. And now, this doesn't seem like a lot right now, because it's still way in the future, but these two archbishoprics, Canterbury and York, are going to fight forever about which one of them is more important. Like, so, for so long, these two are going to fight over which one is actually more important. So they can look back later on in the 10th and 11th century and blame Gregory III. He also promoted our missionary from last week, St. Boniface, to be the Archbishop of Mainz in the next year, 732, as Boniface at this point had had incredible success in establishing the church through Hesse and Thuringen. In 737, St. Boniface returns to Rome, 
And while he was there, Gregory also honors him with the status of papal legate and confirms on him the authority to organize new Episcopal sees as he continues to expand and organize the church. So it's like, go forth and make dioceses because that's what you're doing and you're doing so great at it. So when Boniface returns to Germany, he carries three letters with him from the Pope. The first was to the established bishoprics and clerics of Germany already, outlining Boniface's status as legate and instructing them to provide any assistance they can to him as he increases the German church. Another addresses the bishops of Alemannia and Bavaria directly, organizing a twice-annual council to be held at Augsburg under the leadership of Boniface. And the last was to the German nobility, commanding their religious obedience to Boniface as the vicar to the Pope. Gregory also sent a new missionary, Willibald, to assist Boniface in Germany, and potentially Willibald's brother, Winibald. All right. And I'm not going to talk a lot about Willibald and Winibald here, because it turns out that their entire family are saints. Like, mother, father, brother, brother, sister, all of them are saints. And some of them have some pretty interesting legacies. So I'm thinking that this is a holy family that we're going to look at on Patreon one day. So long and short of that is that Boniface will continue his evangelizing efforts even after the death of Gregory, establishing a bunch of dioceses. And one of them that he will establish will be with the support of Charles Martel. Remember him? Yep, from last week. It's from last week. So yeah, so he's, he's tying himself in with important people. Not only did Gregory have to deal with this iconoclast controversy that's been going on, he also has to deal with the increasing conflict with the Lombards, because... Of course. Last week, we saw how tumultuous relations were between the Lombards and the Byzantine rule, and between the Pope and the Lombard king, Leotprand. Everything was kind of up and down, but in the few circumstances where Gregory II had ended up on the wrong side of Leotprand, his personal influence with the king had been enough to maintain peace, right? Even when Leotprand made deals against the Pope, Whenever he was in the presence of the Pope, he was fairly overwhelmed and influenced by his goodness. It turns out that Gregory III does not have the same kind of sway with the king, nor does it seem that he really wanted to have the same sort of sway with the king. So the Lombards continue at this point to take territory away from the Byzantines. And since it was only two years since Leotprand had cut a deal with the Exarch to march on Rome, Pope Gregory is keenly aware that the city could come under threat at any given moment. So, one of his main priorities was to continue the efforts of Pope Sicinius and Gregory II to rebuild the walls of Rome. And he gets to be the guy who actually finishes this project, right? It has started so many popes ago, but he gets to be the guy who slaps that finished seal on there. I mean, you gotta sometimes. I mean, it's a good thing to be able to say, I have completed this long-lasting legacy project. It's, and it's an important one, right? So the walls are rebuilt and fortified, and he also ensured that strongholds like Centum Cele, which is Civita Vecchia, were really, really, really well defended. He even purchased the stronghold of Galese, which was a vital communication point between Rome and Ravenna, about halfway. So he 
buys this from the Duke of Spoleto, Thrasimund II, as part of a peace treaty. Thrasimund had taken Galatia from control of the Exarch in 737, and by now turning it over to the Pope, he restores it as a very, very vital point of transport between those two major, major Byzantine holdings. So it is a very big deal for them at this time. However, this is also where Gregory seems to have gotten himself into some further Lombard trouble. When we talk about the Lombards, we always end up talking about two dukes. We talk about the Duke of Spoleto and the Duke of Benevento for one particular reason, which is that they are notoriously rebellious. Whatever's going on with the Lombard king, you can bet that these two duchies, no matter who's in charge, are rebelling and just not cooperating. They're difficult for the Lombard king, no matter what time period we're talking about. And so when Gregory enters this peace deal with Thrasimund, who is the Duke of Spoleto, he sort of by extension was kind of, sort of, or maybe entirely intentionally allying himself against the Lombard king. You are now in a peace deal with this dude who causes me so much trouble, I don't like that. And unsurprisingly, Leotprand does not take this well and does not like that. In 738 or so, the Lombards under Leotprand renewed their aggressive expansion, and Ravenna was attacked, as well as Spoleto and Benevento. So he's just like, I'm going to take all of this troublesomeness out at once. I'm really annoyed at the Pope. Let's attack the Byzantines, Spoleto, and Benevento all at once. So Thrasimund, in his duchy, flees Spoleto, and the Duke of Benevento did the same thing. And he comes straight to Rome, where he's welcomed in by the Pope. He's now basically welcomed in a traitor. This is another thing that sets King Leotprand off. So he decides, hey, they're going straight for Rome. I'm going to do the same, and I'm going to take every city that I can on my way. And as Leotprand advanced on Rome... The Pope realizes that even if the dukes aren't going to move against him, and even if he has the militia of the city and they all give their support to the Pope, there is not even close to an adequate military force to fend off Leopold's army at this point. And so he has to turn to somebody for support. And he turns to Charles Martel, the Duke and Prince of the Franks and Mayor of the Palace. It's been a while since we've talked about the Franks, and they're going to play a major role in the papacy very soon, so we are going to go over Charles Martel's role in much more detail. It's coming, but all we need to know for right now is that Charles Martel is the man in charge. Charles in charge. Charles is in charge, and this is the man that Gregory's reaching out to, even though he knows that every time a pope has reached out to Charles Martel so far, they've not received a response. But Gregory was pretty well aware of the stakes at this point. He realizes how much he's pissed off the Lombard king, and he has to try something. On his first attempt, once again, Charles Martel does not respond to the Pope. He doesn't provide any assistance. And understandably so, because his current forces are tied up in a years-long struggle with the Umayyad Muslim invasions. 
And more than that, Charles Martel and the Franks have been allies to the Lombards, so he had no real reason to alienate them for the Pope at this point. They're, they're more useful to him than the Pope is. And so the Lombards continue to get closer. And they're taking cities along their way. They take Blaro, they take Ortis, they take Bomsaro, right up to the gates of Rome for a siege. Gregory is like, oh, crap. Here they are. They are literally going to sack the city of Rome. I'm going to try again. So he writes to Charles Martel a second time, this time with even more urgency. And this letter we actually have. In our great affliction, we have thought it necessary to write to you a second time, believing that you are a loving son of St. Peter, Prince of the Apostles, and of ourselves, and that out of reference for him who you would obey commands to defend the Church of God and his chosen people, we can now no longer endure the persecution of the Lombards, for they have taken from St. Peter all his possessions, even those which were given to him by you and your fathers. These Lombards hate and oppress us because we sought protection from you. For the same reason also the Church of St. Peter is despoiled and desolated by them. But we have entrusted a more complete account of all our woes to your faithful subject, our present messenger, and he will relate them to you. You, O son, will receive favor from the same Prince of Apostles here and in the future life in the presence of God, according you render speedy aid to his church and to us, that all peoples may recognize his faith and love and singleness of purpose, which you display in defending St. Peter and us his chosen people. For by doing this, you will attain lasting fame on earth and eternal life in heaven. Please, 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 please help me. We love you. St. Peter loves you. Please get your butt down here. And this time, he gets a little bit of a response. Charles Martel does not send him an army, but sends him an embassy, intending to mediate between the Pope and the Lombards. But the Lombards were already sort of in retreat by that point, so the gesture doesn't actually help that much. The Pope just happens to be so grateful to see a level of support that this small, ineffective gesture of sending an embassy establishes the beginning of a relationship that will play a massive role in the future of the papacy. But more on that in different episodes to come. But then, in 740... Just when the embassy from Charles Martel starts to leave, Thrasimund, the Duke of Spoleto, moves against Leoprand and takes his duchy back. And he's supported in this effort by the Pope. Yeah, I don't like these petty squabbles. I'm already tired of them. Right, right? But this is really dumb on Gregory's part. You've just narrowly survived having your city sacked because you made Leoprand angry, and then you're going to support his rebellious duke to take back his duchy with your, like, with your open and public support. He is not very smart. So Leoprand is now furious again, and he whips around and he's going to attack the exarchate in retaliation, and then he's going to march on Rome. He's like, look, this time you done and I am coming for you. But then, in the midst of this conflict, on November 28th of 741, Gregory dies before the Lombards could get a hold of him. Very potentially fortunate for him. So he was buried in an oratory dedicated to Our Lady that he'd built in St. Peter's, and as best we know, the only epitaph that he had simply read, Pope Gregory III entombed here. 
Was it destroyed? I, well, here's the thing. His tomb originally had a mosaic. But Wendy J. Reardon tells us that it was damaged in the 11th century when a tomb was added for Pope Eugene III. Why are these people so bad at renovation? I know. And then they both get destroyed for New St. Peter. Ah! So double destruction. And that is the end of Pope Gregory III. And now it's time to rate him. We'll have to see how he stands up against his namesake of last week. Well, Greg, too, did so good. Chef's kiss. Papatum infallium. Here we have to consider that he was elected by acclamation. This always feels like it's worth a point in this round. It does feel like it, but I need to know why they were so smitten with him. Like, did he say just like a stupid joke and they're like, you're Pope now. <laughs> I mean, maybe for all we know, it says that they saw him in front of the beard. So this man literally just stepped out of his church to watch the funeral. He must have, I don't know, maybe like a cloud parted and a light just landed on him the right way. Maybe there's a bird that we don't know about. I need more information. I know. I know. I wish we had more. Yeah. Is he a glorious, picturesque god of sorts? Like uh, Idris Elba stepping out through the sunlight? Uh, we do have a photo that we're going to look at, so you can tell me. <laughs> you know what? I don't like your tone of voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just pulled up the picture just to check, and um, you're going to have some thoughts. Let's, let's put it that way. But in this category also, he resisted iconoclasm. He holds two synods to officially condemn it as heresy. He emphasizes veneration of images and beautified the churches of Rome to make his point. He establishes the second archbishopric in England. If we want to look at it in a bad light, he lost control over jurisdiction of Illyricum in Sicily and Calabria because of the emperor. It's not bad. Can I lean towards like um, just over five? Let's say like a six. Yeah, you can give him a six. I'm thinking, you know, I'm giving him a point for acclamation and I'm going to give him some points for resisting iconoclasm. So I think I'm at a, a standard five. Because it's pretty, it's just all right. He'll get an 11 in Papatum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum. Okay, I don't know if there's anything we can really score him any points on here, but my evaluation is that he seems to be on some level like a fairly provocative person. Look, I feel like maybe one point for just, he. everything he does is so petty. It is very petty, yeah. You, The first guy who was like, yo, you didn't, deliver this letter for me go the f back and then <laughs> you know all his stupid petty like we're gonna take this land back nonsense and there's that and he also like he's not only just resisting iconoclasm but he is like emphasizing icon federation right it could be considered provocative and petty so yeah there is definitely a level of pettiness here. He is provoking people. He's provoking Leopren. He's provoking the Emperor. He's, yeah. Do you want to give him one each or one? Um, how are you feeling? I feel like he's petty. I'm, I'm willing to give him a point all my loan so we can give him a two. Two points then for being so goddamn petty. All right, he gets a two for Fructus Prohibitum. Seculari impactum. He's probably going to do pretty well here because he completes the rebuilding of the walls of Rome, huge for the protection of the city. 
he's restoring churches like crazy to the point, like, we call it petty and he is doubling down on icon veneration here, but the restoration and beautification of the churches goes so far that Encyclopedia.com credits him with leading to the physical transformation of classical Rome into a medieval Christian city. Petty. Petty, but like totally changing the landscape of Rome at the same time. So consider that. All right. He built a hospice. That's important. Yeah, to help support the poor of Rome. His resistance to the emperor and the exarch's inability to intervene represents that Rome has kind of moved outside the control of the empire, which is something. And then I have something very weird for you, because in 732, Pope Gregory III banned the consumption of horse meat, associating it with pagan feasts. We get the evidence of this in a letter he sent to St. Boniface, which says, You say, among other things, that some eat wild horses and many eat tame horses. By no means allow this to happen in future, but suppress it in every possible way with the help of Christ and impose a suitable penance on offenders. It is a filthy and abominable custom. We pray God that you may achieve complete success in turning the heathens from the errors of their ways. Is that why we don't eat horses? Is it him? Kind of. I found an article on this on a website called horsetalk.co.nz, and the article is about the Vatican versus the Viking. So the roots of the American horse-eating taboo seems to come from this idea that the church condemned it as a pagan practice. Yes, this is why we don't eat horse meat. That might be worth some secular impact points. It's worth some points. Let's go with five. All right, you're gonna give him a five. I'm, I'm gonna give him, I'm gonna give him a seven because that horse meat thing sure has lasted. So he'll get a twelve in seculari impactum. Fossium sanctus. Now, are you ready to see if this man is is a godlike Idriselva <laughs> walking out? You tell me. This looks like Borat. Borat with a tonsure. A hardcore tonsure. He does not have a bunny poof. It goes all the way. This man had a full and lustrous head of hair before they shaved that much off. Yeah, yeah, he did. This is Borat. This is just Sasha Baron Cohen. I mean, sure. All right, we can go with that. Have you I, not? Look at him. I have not watched the Borat. I know who Sasha Baron Cohen is, and I have definitely seen him as Borat, but I have not watched either Borat, so... That's fine, you don't have to watch a Borat, just... Good. I don't want to watch a Borat. <laughs> that is... that is a look for him. I, we know who to cast in the movie now, if we're if we're gonna make a movie about Gregory Third for whatever reason. I don't know why. I don't know, I have to give this man a two. A two? Oh, you don't like it then. Mm-mm. This is an awful look. I'll give him a four because I don't feel as strongly about it, but I also don't feel positively about it. So he'll get a six. When we score that out, that is a 1.5. I have a couple more images for you, though. This is this is just Harry Colin mockery for you. Wow, another. And then there's this one, which I particularly like. This is our other bad artist, and this looks nothing like any of the other ones, and it is... It is a look. Oh, Brie. <laughs> that is a look about, uh, that is a man who is about to do something so petty. Yeah, it is. 
And then we also have a papal medal. It looks like a coin, but it is definitely not a coin from the era. So this was struck much, much more recently, but it is, it is pretty good. That looks like the Calamacri drawing. Yeah. They've obviously used that as their reference. So this is this was struck much later because they've used these references. But it's a it's a papal medal of of Gregory the Third. Tempus Pontificus. February eleventh, seven thirty-one to November twenty-eighth, seven forty-one, which is ten and a half years and a score of two point six two five. It's a long time. That is quite a long time. Not our longest, but still a long time. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Yes, he is a saint. He has a feast day of November 28th. Today. Oh, it is today. Hey, look at that. That's weird. (laughs) (laughs) We're recording this on his feast day. How appropriate. And I want to point out to you that he is not the patron saint of anything, so we can make him a patron saint of something pettiness so you say that but we already made pope theodore the patron saint of pettiness god damn it i knew we had done it i was just looking up and it wasn't that long ago yeah pope theodore is the patron saint of pettiness so uh, we could make them share it if we want let me find a thesaurus i'm gonna (laughs) i'm gonna get it i'm gonna do it Jordan says we should make him, he just texted me, he said we should make him the patron saints of coincidence. (laughs) Can he hear us? (laughs) He can hear us, Coincidence? Because we're recording this on his feast day. That's a good one, I like that. That is. (laughs) Alright, let's make him the patron saints of coincidence. But you can also do your thesaurus look, because it's also a coincidence that we've already made a pope of pettiness. So he can have two. Triviality. Triviality, all right. (laughs) Because I'm looking up and we've also made other saints, patron saints of two things. We have um, Pope Leo II is the patron saint of Irish bullies and meme exhaustion. So that will make Pope Gregory III the patron saint of coincidence and triviality. (laughs) So that brings us to his total score, which is... Really not bad. He scored a 30.125. Oh, not as much as Greg 2. No, he's 10 points under Greg 2, but he's he's still definitely a higher scorer in this in this whole thing in our last few centuries. We don't have another 30 until I think Martin, who's our Pope 70. Adeodatus the 1st received a 30. Yeah, he scored really well. Not bad. Now I must ask you if you think he is papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull? No. I'm gonna be petty. No, let's be petty and not give it to him. Also, so, um, we don't have an official Pope watch, but today is the day in which the new cardinals that we mentioned on our last episode are being consecrated. It's their first day. <gasps> it's their first day. Only it was about four hours ago that the Bishop of Washington became America's first black cardinal. That's exciting. And we also have a thank you to make. I would like to make a shout out and thank you to Grim Reading, who did their recent episode where they covered the biography of the Brothers Grimm, 
And as a result, they had to talk about all sorts of history that was so outside of their range, but they did an amazing job. And they talked about some popes in there. And so they gave us a big, nice shout out and, and recommended people listening to us. So thank you very much for that. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifexwishlist. Or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifexpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. And I think with that, we can say thank you and goodbye. Bye. Bye.